Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 299 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I'm thrilled that you're here with me today on this bonus mini episode where I will answer a few questions that have come in from my Patreon subscribers who subscribe at the $5 a month level or up. Thank you. Thank you so much for anyone, everyone who subscribes. It makes such a difference in my life. It really, really does. It allows me to be here for you. And uh, that's really honestly, one of my favorite places in the world to be is here for you. So let's jump into them. Um, This first question is from Ellie and it's one I've never gotten before and I really, really like it. So I, you know, I like all the questions, but this one is is new and unique. And uh, she says, as part of my day job, I advise undergraduate students applying to law school and graduate programs. The thing they hate even more than the LSAT and the GRE, is writing their personal statement. And frankly, it often shows in their essays, which I also review and provide feedback on. Most of these students are not English majors who are eager to show off their writing skills, and many of them do not think of themselves as writers. I view personal statements as tiny memoirs, a three-page story about the applicants that show their motivation and career aspirations, demonstrates why they'd be a good fit for this school while also addressing a general prompt. I have read some essays that made me cry in a good way because of the story the writer told. Each of those essays was written by students who did not feel they were storytellers, and they worked hard to shape their essays into something very powerful. So I know it can be done. I am putting together a workshop with tips on writing a personal statement that Number one, won't make me want to sob in a bad way when I read it. And number two, will help them write a personal statement that is actually personal. My question for you is whether you can offer any advice from your experience teaching and writing memoirs to students who are struggling to tell their stories in this limited format. Yes, it is a difficult question and it is a difficult thing to do to show yourself in a personal, deep way that will affect the reader, which is what these essays are meant to do. They're they're meant to affect the person on the other end who is receiving this application. But in any essay writing that we do, in any creative nonfiction writing that we do, and you can argue that this is true for fiction as well, there is There are a few things that we want to have in place, even for such a small piece. And I do like to think of this as a three-legged stool. So the first leg is kind of the thesis. We can think of it as the thesis. What is this trying to prove? What is this little mini essay or large essay? If you're writing a 15,000 word essay, it doesn't matter how big it is, but what is this essay trying to prove? The second leg is why does it matter? And that's for me is usually the piece that is the hardest to figure out. And once I have it, then I can write the piece. But I, I think about this a lot every time I write a Patreon essay. I'm trying to show something. I'm trying to prove something. Um, but why? It's like uh, Cami Ostman of the Narrative Project always talks about the what and the so what. What are you going to try to prove? And so what? Why does it matter? And then that third leg is the showing, the detail of a specific moment in time that happened with as much detail as room allows. So in a three-page 
miniature essay like this, they're not going to have much time. But instead of talking about the time that their father almost died, but they got to the hospital in time. And uh, because they arrived at the hospital in time, dad got a new lease on life and made it through the surgery. Instead of saying it, just like I said it, I arrived at the hospital in time. And my father said that he got a new lease on life and made it through the surgery. Instead of that, they show the beep of the machine and the clamminess of their father's hand when they held their father's hand for the first time since they were four or five um, and how their father's fingers felt in their own and how they'd never noticed that their hands were now the same size and the way that his eyes, when they looked into each other's, looked just like your little brother's and you never noticed that your little brother has dad's eyes and you know this and and dad says thank you and he's never said thank you before and that's in it's in that's in dialogue tags um those tiny details are what makes the reader lean in and listen and watch and that is what conveys that emotional experience another thing that conveys the emotional experience is uh to remember to bring the body in the body of the writer in so when it's important that we feel dad's clammy, cold skin or, you know, warm, soft skin or whatever it is. Um, it's important that we have those visceral cues inside the writer's body. So remembering to what, what might that writer's body have been doing at that moment? You can ask them, would you have swallowed hard around the lump in your throat to try to keep back the crying? Um, would you have blinked rapidly? Does your stomach hurt? Are your hands and fists, are you slouched on the couch, taking up room, feeling comfortable because you're in a different environment? Uh, are you curled into a ball, trying to take up as little room as possible? So showing a discreet, nameable, describable moment in time does so much more. It is basically becomes shorthand for an entire story that you could tell. You can show in, you know, a two, something that happened in two or three minutes at dad's bedside that can kind of stand in for the entire relationship. We can understand different things the, by the way you tell it. Uh, is this the first time you've ever connected with your father? That'll show. Is it a continuation of the connection you've always had with your father? And you're worried that it ends now, that this will be the last moment of it. That says a different thing. And it doesn't say my father and I had been close for my entire 19-year life. That doesn't mean anything to me. I don't care about that. Showing that this closeness is something that you're worried about losing and that your whole body is reacting to it is something that I want to know. So if these students, and if anybody writing personal narrative nonfiction can think of, if you're writing an essay format, this does not apply if you're writing in a, in, um, memoir format where you're telling an entire overreaching over you know overarching story although you'll have a lot of these little moments but if you want a standalone essay i do believe that keeping those three legs of the stool in mind are how we do it um what are we trying to show why does it matter and then show that in action in a moment in a scene or two scenes or three scenes or however many you can fit in there uh you have to explain less 
when you show more. And yes, I will always say that show, no tell is a nice thing to know. Sometimes we have to tell, sometimes we just have to, but when we are allowed to take the time to show something, um, it is so much stronger. And Ellie, I wonder if those ones that have made you cry in a good way had those moments of showing something that really happened and that you felt like you kind of got to witness and eavesdrop on because this writer showed it to you. Uh, so that is what I would encourage. Um, and I hope that that helps if you are, while you're putting together this structure for your students. And I think you're doing an amazing job. I used to do this uh, way back in the day. Um, I worked in a student uh, help center and, and did this kind of thing. And I found it very, very, very challenging as well, most especially, of course, with the students who either hate to do this kind of writing or think that they hate doing it, um, or people who just don't think they have the skills, whether English is their second language or whether they've been told that they don't have these kind of um, written skills. It's so hard to break through that fear and get the story out that is behind that fear. So you're doing the Lord's work. Uh, keep that up. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking that, Ellie. All oh, right. Um, and then a couple of questions here from darling Maggie. Hello, Maggie. And she says, can you please explain the difference between a premise and a hook? Oh, such a good question. It's one of those situations where uh, all the writers are using all the same words to mean different things. If you are talking in a very general sense, um, and you're sitting in a bar and it's the, is you're at a writer's conference and somebody says, so what's the, what's the premise of your book? Um, that's basically the same thing as them saying, so, you know, what's the, what's the hook of your book? It's the same thing. They want to know what is the pithy one-liner or fraction of a sentence that says what you're doing with this book. It is, uh, um, I cannot even think of a single movie. It is Bridgerton meets Speed. There we go. That would be a premise or a hook. Uh, it, it is, uh, speaking of speed, um, the hook or the premise would be she's got to keep the bus above 50 miles an hour or it will explode. There you go. You understand the whole book because of the premise. The book that I'm writing, uh, she's going to die soon, but she'll experience seven miracles before she does. That's the premise. There's, you'll notice there's no plot in there. There's no, there's no real story. We don't know anything about the character. Uh, that it, and I am, I am exceedingly good at premises and, and then less so at actually writing the book because that's the hard part. So um, that, that's usually what people are talking about. What, what is your story about in a nutshell? What's the smallest was the fewest number of words you could use to describe this book. When I, in my classes and some other teachers, when they talk about the hook, sometimes we are using that uh, to talk about how we get into the book. Um, when I'm talking about the book, oh, the hook, I like to think about that very first scene and how it hooks a reader in. It makes the reader interested immediately, even though they don't know these people yet and there's no reason for them to care. It's not going to be the inciting incident because the inciting incident is a little bit later in the book. And it is where our main characters make the decision to engage with the problem, which has presented itself. They have to make the decision. They can't just be thrust into it. They have to make the decision to do something differently to enter this new world. Um, so you don't want to front load your first scenes with a world-changing event 
I mean, sometimes you can, but you've got to think really carefully about how and why you're doing it. And then what that means about the later inciting incident. Um, but if you front or front load those, that first scene or two with major life-changing events for this character, it doesn't really matter because our characters are not beloved by the reader yet. So, so they're like, Oh, her star just exploded. Okay. That must suck for her, but, but we don't care. And, um, I always bring it back to that idea of, you know, if, if someone you're in the grocery store, say, and the guy behind you tugs your shirt and says, my mom just died like two minutes ago. Well, oh my God, your heart is going to hurt. And you might give him a hug if you're both wearing masks and you're comfortable with that. Um, if you want to hug, consent is important. And you will walk out of the store going, oh, that poor guy, that sucks. But you know, an hour later, you will you probably not think of him for more than a few seconds at a time. And then by tomorrow, you're not going to be thinking about him because you don't care. You have no investment in him. However, if you have spent, you know, a day or two with this guy and you know that he loves his mother or, you know, or that he hates his mother. And you also know that he's, you know, trying to get his kid into this one preschool um, because it's got the teacher who is trans inclusive and your kid needs to be in that classroom. And then his mother dies. Now we care. Now, when this happens, we want to know more and we want to be there because we have empathy and we support this character. So when I personally, Rachel Heron, and I know it's annoying, I should probably change the word for this, but when I talk about the hook in my classes, it is that first scene. How do we, how do we bait the reader into continuing to read by presenting them an interesting enough scene, which implies something about the theme and subject matter for the rest of the book, but not too much it just gets us in. Um, that's for me, a hook and it is practically impossible to do. And that's why we try not to do it well on the first draft, because there's a 97% chance you're going to change that first scene because the book will teach you what it wants to be. And then after you've written the first draft and you know a little bit more about what the book wants to be, then you can go, oh, okay, now I'm going to make that first scene, do the heavy lifting. Now that I know what I'm talking about, perhaps I'm going to rewrite that whole thing. So my guidance is always to write that first scene in your book as quickly as possible, knowing that it's just going to change. Very, very, very likely that it will change in a totally, completely. Um, and if it doesn't, good for you. You are you are the exception to that rule. And I'm speaking to the you plural, not just to you, Maggie. I know, I know, I know how your books work. Uh, let's see. And then she says, okay. And then an example of how the premise. Uh, might manifest differently in a query letter and the opening pages of your novel. So in a query letter, we are going to display that premise. We're going to display that, display that big concept, that high concept, the big idea of the book. In the query letter, you're going to talk about that premise. You may not be talking about that premise in the first pages of the novel. Again, the first pages of the, of the novel only have to get our reader interested enough to continue turning the pages. But it it does matter that, um, so you so it, in a query letter, your the agent will get the query letter, they will know the premise of the book, and then they will open those first pages if they have requested to see a partial or a full manuscript. They'll open those pages and they'll start reading, knowing the premise, just like they would if they'd read the back blurb of a book and picked it up in a bookstore and started reading. The connection is there in their mind. They do not need to see reiterated in those first few pages of a book, anything about the premise. Uh, because a lot of times the premise 
stems from something that happens at the inciting incident. Not always, of course, but a lot of times that's when a book, that's when the story really begins is at that inciting incident. So it won't be there in those first few pages. What they're looking for in those first few pages is an interesting thing that's happening. That's showing the character in their status quo, uh, which is about to get rocked. So does that make sense? They don't have to be totally connected. Um, but if you're writing a book about, uh, the, about the grief of a woman who loses her whole family, and that's what the book is about. She loses her whole family in a tsunami because, oh my God, that memoir called wave. Uh, but say it's a novel about a woman who loses her entire family in a tsunami and is about grief. That book is probably not going to open at Disneyland. Um, with a bunch of jokes and a lot of fun, lighthearted humor, you're going to lure the wrong reader in with those opening pages and then smack them with a book about grief. Could they be at Disneyland before the tsunami? Absolutely. Could there be fun? Yes. But there's also going to be a feeling in those first pages about uh, deep connection, deep love, fear of loss. Uh, we want to be, we want to be intimating what is going to be happening in a book with those first few pages. And again, if you're in the first draft or two or three, sometimes don't worry about that first, those first few scenes yet, get them in place so that you got something to work with later, something to change later. Uh, but it's a big ask for those few pages. We, we just want the, with the, it's like opening the door. We want the aroma of what is cooking on the stove to be in the air when our reader opens the door, but they're not eating the meal yet. They're just, they're, you know, are they smelling um, cinnamon spice because it's fresh baked oh, hot cross buns? Or is it the deep, rich scent of beef burgundy being cooked? I don't even know how to make that. Um, you know what I mean? So uh, they do not have to, so the, the, the manifestation of your premise will appear differently in a query letter. It will be stated. And it may not appear in those opening pages of the novel. Uh, related question, she says, if a book is more character driven than plot driven, does it change how quickly you have to present the inciting incident? Um, how about in genre expectations like romance compared to a men's fiction? Uh, so if the book is more character driven than plot driven, does it change how quickly you have to present the inciting incident? No, usually, I mean, the inciting incident can move around quite a bit. Um, and these are story expectations, their story gravity, their literary gravity, their how stories fly. But again, we get to put our own spin on everything. We just kind of need to know how the plane works. And then we get to send it into free falls and dives and turns and loop-de-loops when we want to. But an inciting incident, normally in a very, 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 very fast-paced book, like a thriller, uh, some kind of crime fiction might happen around 8 to 10%. Normally it's going to happen between 12 and 18% uh, of the book, but it's not going to happen faster because it is fast or slower um, because it is character driven, not plot driven. It will always happen in about the same place. And we do that for a reason because the reader is looking for that change to occur. They're looking for that thing. They don't know it, but they're looking for that um, problem, that question to be open and for this character to make a decision and for them to go along with it. Uh, I will say that literary fiction, 
you probably have a little bit more latitude. You can go 20 to 25% before the inciting incident happens because a literary reader who is not reading in um, a genre like romance or mystery or thriller or any of those uh, might have a little bit more patience to go with a slower plot. Um, but, but even then, I have told you this before, uh, my, my highly literary driven writer friends often have their books and manuscripts rejected by agents and publishers for a rewrite to bring them into stronger story structure. So they're, they're looking for it there too. Uh, but no, it's, it's generally about the same, the same place. Um, romance and women's fiction is going to have the same inciting incident placement. Uh, yeah. And I can't think of an exception to that. Of course, the pacing, the pacing might be different depending on what you're writing and depending on what kind of a writer you are and what you want your reader to experience. Is it going to be slower and more gentle? Is it going to be pow, 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 fast, fast, fast? The percentages of where these things will happen are going to remain in about the same place. And if your brain is going, what are you talking about percentages? What do you mean? Then you should definitely go sign up for my writer's email list of encouragement because because at some point on that email autoresponder sequence, you get my beat sheet um, that I have put together uh, that I use to write a book. And it's based on everything I've learned over all of the years from all of the teachers, all in one PDF that you can print out and have next to you. And it's got all the percentages, which are, which are suggested. If you know the rules, you can break the rules, but there are some rules you don't want to break too much. I, the three things that need to be in approximately the expected place, I believe are inciting incident, the context shifting midpoint and the dark moment. The rest you do you. The rest is all just a nice to have, but those three things probably need to be in approximately the right place. So fantastic questions, both of you. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Ellie, for these. I really, really appreciate them. Uh, if you are a patron at the level of the coaching, I'm out of questions. Send me some more questions. Are you sitting there listening to any of the shows or any other shows or working on your book and having and find yourself facing a question? Let me have it. Tell me about it and let me answer it because I really enjoy doing this. Okay, my friends, I wish you very happy writing. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.